Thanks for tuning into Behind the Scene, a conversation dedicated to uncovering our biases and how to navigate them in a constructive way. Hi, I'm Mark Bauer. And I'm Brandon Polk. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 5 of Behind the Scene, a bi-monthly conversation focused on understanding the biases that are at the root of society's racial tensions. Today, we're going to uh, be talking a little bit about forgiveness and, uh, and some of the, the stepping on toes that can occur when you have conflict arise in the conversation of racial justice specifically. And we're going to use as a springboard into that conversation, um, kind of a review, a preview of the movie Emmanuel that is coming out to theaters, a limited screening uh, limited time screening in June, uh, but that movie is based on the, the Charleston sh- church shooting uh, where uh, Dylan Roof went into a, a black church uh, and shot nine of the congregants during a Bible study. And so uh, that that movie is, uh, the, the real emphasis of that movie is without, well, I guess we're, there's no way to talk about it without spoiling it, is Ultimately, that the, the forgiveness of Dylan Roof, the shooter that arose out of that, and so uh, Brandon, I'm going to toss it to you to kind of give a, a synopsis about that and explain a little bit more why we're talking about that. Sure. Well, I think we'll have to probably put on here spoiler alert to the title of this thing, so that people know it's like literally like impossible, you know, to talk about the film without talking about the film. So, um, so. You know, for all of you folks out there, you know, Mark and I had the chance to view the film twice in the last week. And one time, you know, was just for us to watch. The second time we were asked to facilitate a um, a talk back of, of sorts, the room of about 70 people in it. And just to facilitate a discussion and experience um, around people's sort of reactions and responses to what they were feeling and what where they feel like we need to go in the country. So uh, a, a synopsis of the film, you know, the film, you know, really opens by giving some historical context of Charleston and its relationship to slavery, um, the slave trade, um, some of the um, uh, moments of abolition that happened in Charleston and um and the insurgents you know of the slaves at certain points you know where freedom would eventually come to them and uh there's a lot of talking about the voice of the black church of course throughout the course of history as um you know that really did arise uh as as a counterpoint to segregation in in churches you know so you know black people at a certain point weren't allowed to sit on on the floor with white folks in churches or only allowed to sit in the balcony and part of the reason you know why um sort of black baptist churches and other black churches um uh, african methodist episcopal is one of the denominations um that uh was affected here it was the emmanuel ame church that uh, was affected in this shooting um the history of of that um, of that church and of that denomination is rooted in, in sort of black saying we're going to create our own space for worship and uh, and 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 for study and for coming together in the name of Jesus. So that's what they did. So the film starts by giving you a little bit of history of that, and then you know we go into some of the voicing of the victims, and 
some of the members of the church that were there that night and some of the members of the uh, family of, of, of slain victims um, who lost their lives. Um, yeah. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a little slow cause I'm sort of putting myself in that space right now, just in case you know, you kind of hear it in my voice, some of the melancholy, um, cause the film is very, very impactful. Um, and especially as you move into this next part of the film with some brief testimonies, then you start to actually see some footage of Dylan Roof himself and his affinity for the Confederate flag, his affinity for going to plantation sites and taking photographs. He even had a manifesto of sorts that he wrote that, um, where he stated that it's black people who are raping all the white women and, and are the denigration of society and all of these things. And anyhow, you um, start to see some of the footage of, um, of what happened that, that night and testimonials of people um, and their reflections on the evening where the atrocities happened. Um, we'll get into some of the other details of the film and some, some things that triggered us and uh, some of the things that uh, the people in the crowd for the discussion that we were, that we were facilitating had to say also. Um, I will also say that two other moments that really stick out are how he was obtained, how Dylan Roof was obtained by the police, how he was interrogated, and um, then the response of the family members 48 hours later during a bond hearing where they spontaneously, the family members were asked to um, sort of give um, some comments to, to Dylan Roof, and there were some utterances of forgiveness that were spontaneous from the family members to him, saying, um, you know, you've taken a lot from us. You've done a lot to harm us and hurt us, and we didn't do anything to you. Mm -hmm. But we forgive you. May God have mercy on your soul. Yeah. Um, really powerful statements, and, and I think that we're going to un- unpack what that forgiveness is <laughs> um the power of it today and um and really just some of the things you know that were really challenging for people in in the audiences as they were talking or, or as they were viewing this film yeah i think that uh to you know the, if you don't recall the shooting it, it occurred in 2015 uh so just a few years ago uh president obama is still in the white house um this is before the 2016 elections and uh, so that that emphasis on forgiveness, you know, that that bond hearing that they forgave him at and they they uttered these these statements of forgiveness that occurred less than 48 hours after the shooting. And so uh, these they're uh, expressing these this forgiveness, um, you know, not months later, not years later, but this is coming out, you know, while before they even have had funerals, you know, they haven't even uh really probably started those processes in, in earnest. And so uh, that's pretty wild. And so that's what we do want to talk about is, is the forgiveness element in this conversation, in, in a history in the United States of so many atrocities concerning slavery, and then the continued uh, white construct in society that benefits white people today. Uh, because I think one, some of the conversations that came out of, and there's so much, like there was so much that you could discuss 
uh, following that, Brandon, you mentioned the how police peacefully arrested him, Dylan Roof, um, which we'll go into more detail concerning like police brutality and you know the differences between how they treat white suspects versus black suspects. Um, but then also like what is required of black people, what is required of white people, and maybe not even required necessarily, but what white people expect black people to do white people expect that forgiveness um and sometimes they expect that forgiveness to co to come without really even expressing their own repentance but we'll also talk about how dylan roof didn't express repentance um and repentance always doesn't always have to precede forgiveness and so brandon mm -hmm. you, you mentioned that before we sat down to record and uh so we'll let you dive into that a little bit more yeah sure i mean you know it's so fascinating you know, as as we're talking about things and uh, around um, whether it's police brutality or um, criminal the, the criminal justice system or the education system, foster care system, child welfare, you know, whatever it is, and the disproportionate ways in which Black people are represented in these various systems um, is it really does it just continues to be appalling. Um, but I, I will tell you like what, what, what is really, um, striking about the Emanuel nine, there were nine victims that lost their lives that day, that evening is that these were people that invited Dylan Roof into their prayer meeting, into their Bible study. He sat through the entire prayer meeting, the entire Bible study. And they welcomed him with open arms. This is a room filled with black people and one white person. And as you go and you watch the film, you see he parked. There's some footage, some, some, some camera footage of how he parked right out front. He parked the closest he could to the door. Walked in, sat through the entire meeting. And then... At the close of the meeting, as soon as they bowed their, their heads to pray, but their eyes closed, he pulls out his weapon and begins to shoot up the place. And the reality of how startling it is that these folks could, could even say, I forgive you at all, much less... 48 hours into the actual thing happening is startling. It's complicated. It's triggering. Um, for some people, you could read it as, as though, you know, they were not in touch with their own black experience. But I don't think we could do that. I don't think we can say that about them. Um, or some people would say, well, they're, they're just minimizing what happened and just gave him forgiveness for free. He didn't have to work for you. He didn't have to repent. He didn't have to admit guilt, have to do any of that, you know, for them to give them forgiveness, for them to give him forgiveness. And, you know, there is this concept that actually arises out of First Nations, sort of out of tribal um, history, you know, um, uh, for Native Americans, is this idea, this concept of forgiveness without repentance. And the reason why is because they recognized early that forgiveness was not actually for the other person, that forgiveness is actually for the person 
for, for that was oppressed, that was wounded, that was the victim, so that they could heal, so they could give away whatever hurt that was there that was damaging them. You know, it was forgiveness. I, I, I will, I will give it all away. I'll give away this hurt and give away this pain, and it doesn't require that you actually, you know, um, like admit guilt, mm-hmm. you know, for what you did. Now, caveat: it doesn't mean that we don't set up boundaries with people. It doesn't mean you're not dealing with emotions around these situations. You know, we all have emotions. I think around narratives going on in the news right now, rhetoric around police brutality or race, whatever our divisions are, and we're allowed to have those feelings and process through them. But this idea of forgiveness without repentance, hmm. Can we actually, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And so forgiveness, if that is for the person who was harmed, uh, then repentance then is for the person who was uh, oppressed. I can repent of something and then I can be freed from it uh, myself. And so those two things are for, they manifest themselves differently for the, the people, the par- the parties who are in that in whatever harm took place you have the the oppressor and you have the oppressed and so those manifest in different ways and so what i think is interesting um is that you know in following the movie some of the conversations were emphasizing you know from white members in the audience the forgiveness element you know so often like if you hear someone talk about reparations in society um someone's quick to say well those were you know that why should I be held accountable for my my forefathers' sins or, or you know the founding fathers of the nation? Um, why should I be held accountable for that? And and we really want to play the the forgiveness card, um, but then we don't also simultaneously, as the inheritors of that oppression, white people have inherited it just as much as black people have on different you know sides of the spectrum. We don't want to own the repentant part. We don't want to repent of that. And because I think what would mm. what would have to come from repentance is the acknowledgement of yeah. past hurts. And then you'd have to also work through it, how that still kind of reverberates to modern day where, you know, as a white man, I, I still am benefiting from from those past hurts. Yeah. And so... Um, that is the repentance. I mean, that is the repentance part is you may not have been there. but against your will, you know, like without your knowledge, you have benefited from something, you know, and does it require, you know what I love to say about this? I mean, there's a biblical concept here that God will visit the iniquity of the sons um, or or of the fathers upon the sons to the third and fourth generation, right? Um, What that means is that the sins of the fathers actually do transfer to those of the sons, you know, to that of the son and daughter. Now, that's a spiritual concept, but in reality, we actually see, you know, where, you know, there's, there's, there's just evidence, you know, of the repercussions of the sins of the forefathers on our present state of mind, our present state of being. And um, now that's not just for individuals. Now, mind you, that's also part of the collective. Now, the collective thought and reasoning around racism, racial science, the entire thing, under slavery, slavery, unto um, like emancipation, but emancipation under civil rights, <laughs> right? And marginalization there, separate but not equal, <laughs> or, or separate but equal. And, you know, 
all those things, you know, that, that, that you can see where these touch points have not just been able to escape us from slavery because there actually hasn't been a formal apology and repentance for slavery itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's, and that's wild. And it kind of makes me think about, uh, in the players tribune a, a few weeks ago, uh, Kyle Korver penned a column about privilege. He's an NBA player. And he talks about the difference between guilt and responsibility. And he, he made sure to, to really make a, a clear distinction between the two. Because so often I think you see a lot of white guilt. And, and that is, I think, goes beyond what's responsible or what's required of us. Because uh, what, what Kyle outlines in his column is he's saying we're not guilty, you know, by any means. Uh, but we are at the same time responsible. And I think that there is a moral obligation, like, right, we can't compel people. But I think that if we can talk to people and see the humanity in everybody, if I can see the humanity in another white person, and then they'll be convicted on their own, I'm not gonna have to compel them to to try to make it right. But I can share the honesty, the honest history, uh, and the honest reflection of of the the current state of how things are and then hope that uh, that they come to an authentic expression of what they feel like their responsibility is today because it's going to look different in different people yeah certainly certainly and, and i think that's a really good distinction you know to be guilty of something you know um you know is something that that you do you know we talk about iniquity and iniquity is not something you did with your own hands. It is, it is actually tied, you know, to to the system of of infraction against another group of people or against another person, whatever it might be, at the hands of of someone that you are connected to, right? And it's passed on to you. Like you have a layer of 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 of, of connection to that original sin. Um, why does it work that way? Um, I would actually just encourage people to go research that and just kind of look at it. I think it's just an interesting concept, you know, when we talk about trauma and generational trauma, we, sh we, we can also talk about generational guilt, right? Like the generational Im impact from original sin within the context of family or race or country, mm -hmm. you know, and the impact of that. Um, we didn't plan on talking about that. But it's an interesting mm -hmm. concept, and I um I think it's more than a concept. I think that we see the evidence of it in in our culture, mm -hmm. and you may even see evidence of it in your families. Mm -hmm. I mean, think about you know we talk about um, how alcoholism, how alcoholism can be passed down at times, right? We're not necessarily talking about. I mean, some of it is biology, perhaps you know. But what if biology is iniquity? What if mm -hmm. biology is actually a consequence of the original sin? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, yeah. what if a biological predisposition X, Y, and Z is actually a consequence of iniquity, mm -hmm. you know, now we can stretch that out, you know, and sort of like manipulate people with that, but that's not what we're trying to do. Right. But I think it's just an interesting thing to, to just sort of weigh, but then how do you get free of it? And I think that there's something here about, about prayer and repentance and, and meditation that instead of the third and fourth generation sort of experiencing a curse you know, for that sin, for, for that original sin, that it's repentance that actually releases the generational blessing, mm. which is like for a thousand years, if you're looking at sort of what the Bible says about blessing, mm. it goes on for a thousand generations, actually, which is basically forever. Mm. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So much. And, you know, we, like you alluded to, we've talked about some of this, you know, past episodes on generational trauma and, um, and privilege. And so if you want to 
dive a little deeper into that, you can go back and check out some of those episodes. Um, we are about midway through this episode, and it really kind of is a little somber. I'm a little tired. It's Monday. We're recording. We both had a long weekend, and we're melancholy about we this episode. Are very melancholy. We just—it's been a long. Uh, and we watched this film twice. Twice, and I back wept. Back nights. I wept twice. Yeah. Like it was like a snotty cry. It mm. wasn't like a like I was in pain cry. I was in a like I'm thinking about my my nephew, my brown nephew. Mm. And what the, so to your point, since we're nearly halfway through, let me just make this point about the thing that really triggered me about the film. Mm-hmm. It's one of those things that just triggered me in my body is that there's this moment, you know, Dylan Roof leaves the church and then he's like gone or whatever. You know, the cops catch up to him, you know, because of a tip from a florist of all people, mm-hmm. you know, who recognized his face and something about the license plate, something like that. And anyway, so you've got like, a number of police officers surrounding his vehicle. And then one of them holsters his gun as he's walking right up to the front driver's side window, Mm -hmm. puts his gun away. You actually see him do it in the film. And the triggering that I had was sort of like, it was like a, I had so many images going through my head, whether it was the image from the movie, um, the hate you you give where the young man was was shot by a police officer. He wasn't even close to him, wasn't even standing to him. He was holding a, 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 a hairbrush, right? Mm. Now that's a movie. But think about Philando Castile, mm. right? Who is in a car, right? Um, and, uh, uh, and, 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 and the officer was didn't holster his gun there. He had his gun. He was ready to go, right? Mm. And there are countless examples of this, you know, and our understanding, or rather our feeling, our feeling, our, our, our feeling, trauma feeling as black and brown people is that put your hands on the dash, don't say anything, be really respectful and tense up, but make sure that you're compliant at all costs, right? Mm. Okay, so here's another layer. Let's just say that that wasn't enough. Not only did they get him out of the car, arrest him, okay, but then they made a pit stop along the way to the police station to Burger King and they fed him Burger King, Right? And then brought him back to the station while he's eating his Burger King. They interrogate him with no no protection. No one's like they're sitting pretty close to him, just having a conversation with him. They're not thinking twice about whether or not this kid is dangerous or not, right? Mm-hmm. They feel completely competent in, in whatever it is, maybe their ability to take him down if he's violent. Mm-hmm. But he just shot nine people and he admitted it in a room, mm-hmm. right? Flando Castile killed no one mm-hmm. and he didn't make it out of the car. Yeah. That is wild, uh, that that contrast. And even last week in Texas, um, someone who was at the screening of the movie, uh, we were told by this by uh, uh, Anna Michelle, who was a, a co-sponsor of the film through a church in Fairfax. Um, she messaged us and said that this, this guy who was at the screening of this movie, the manual, learned afterward that he was there's some sort of relation to the woman who was shot and killed in Baytown, Texas, as she was being uh, attempted to be arrested in uh, an apartment complex where she lived, parking lot. And um, so there's a couple things going on there. She she lives there. The, the police officer is already familiar with her. He understands she has warrants um, and understands if, if he's familiar with her. I understand that there could have been some some mental health issues with this woman, um, 
during the course of the rest the arrest which was caught on video she makes some statements there's a, a struggle that that goes on he tries to tase her eventually she gets a hold of his taser and try, attempts according to the police to tase him back she's on the ground the, the struggle continues he steps back and then fires she's on the ground and he shoots her five times he's, mm-hmm. he's standing up and he's backing away mm-hmm. and um and so look at that the contrast of that um with with this woman and so i was that's something that i don't really have to experience as a as a white person i can say that being listening to stories from my uh black and brown friends i'm i try to empathize with it as much as i can and try to understand it at the end of uh, the movie if you haven't seen it you should go check it out um get out uh oh, yeah. at the end of the movie there's a uh oh, an encounter with a police officer this this black man is about to have and he's gone through this this whole uh horrible ordeal to be walking down the street to be encountering a police officer and i it it really it gave you the impression that some something bad was about to go down and so as having that perspective now as a white person that i wasn't familiar with before that black people are taught from a very young age you know, like you said, keep your hands on the dash, uh, be very mindful and compliant. Um, that was very intense just for me to be an observer of that. And um, and on my way this week, actually, after the, the movie, I was in an Uber coming home late at night and a police officer pulled a U-turn, turned on his lights. I have a black driver. And all I could think about was, oh, man, like, I'm like this is just me in an uber with a black driver now can you imagine being a black driver like the stress that i was feeling i'm like mm-hmm. i want to be as as compliant myself for this person i don't want to yeah. cause any trouble for for this driver mm-hmm. um and and it went well most stops go well but what kind of biases are at play for these police officers who are shooting black people uh but are taking you know this guy who mowed down nine people in this church taking him peacefully uh and also this week i don't know when this occurred but there's a video of a cop who is literally he's wrestling he is this woman is beating him she is hitting him she's overpowering him really uh and no taser drawn no right. he doesn't pull his gun at all uh and just the stark differences between those that that now you can see played out because so many people have their cameras and are posting on social media. Yeah, interesting. And and for you know folks who might be triggered, I mean, you know, let's just pull it out for just a second. You know, away from the focus on incidents, you know, of police shootings or whatnot. You know, you hear me sigh. I I <laughs> I think that what's really like important to understand or a question to ask is. Should I, as a black person, have to bear the responsibility of making, of, of, of just that, that pressure of making sure that I'm trained on how to not just interface with police officers. I think there's something responsible about that for parenting, right? But I'm talking about something else. I'm talking about like as a collective, sort of as a diasporic experience, we feel that the, the, there's an expectation that we're not going to be treated 
as valuable or as the same or equal. Now, regardless of whether or not you believe that's true or not in the present, let's just talk about the phenomenon of the collective experience that Black people have in regards to that and ask yourself, where doth that come from? (laughs) You know, what is the origin of that? Did we make it up? Is there some grand conspiracy, (laughs) you know, where all the black people have had a meeting, we've all come together, you know, on Skype or some other platform, you know, and said, this is how we're going to treat white cops today. This is how we're going to treat police officers, regardless of their color, is that we're going to create this system, you know, where, where we say we're afraid, right? Or that we're tense and it's all a fallacy, right? Are you going to tell me that we have that much coordination, (laughs) you know, going on across the country, that that's what we think and feel and that it's not valid, mm-hmm. right? That is one of the things that in white circles, one of the rebuttals to police brutality specifically or any kind of racism in general is, well, actually, white and brown people are pulled over at similar rates or yada, yada. I'm not, I'm not sure if that's even true, but yeah, they will pull out statistics that say things like that. And I think, or... Police brutality is in, uh, used just as often, you know, the rates of police brutality against white people. And I don't know, like, I don't want to break down numbers because I don't think that we can identify the, the truth. Yeah, it's right. not it's the just point. not the point. Right. I think if you listen, like you, to your point, if you just listen to the stories uh, of people, then they'll tell you, yeah, I feel that. Or, um, yeah, look at the video. Look, like, look at these things that are out there and listen and uh and you'll begin to understand if your posture is that you're trying to react and tell people that their experience isn't really what it is Mm. um like that's that's not loving and and i i think about if i'm if i have a group of friends and i've you know lamented about experiences that i've had maybe at work with a coworker that i i wasn't getting along with or uh a a relationship if any one of them came back and was like is, are you really sure that's what you were experiencing mark or maybe it was actually this or maybe you were just being overly sensitive mm-hmm. i can tell you that i would not talk to that person ever again and or <laughs> or at least i wouldn't uh you wouldn't share i wouldn't anything share with anything with them and i wouldn't consider them as someone who would be close that they they wouldn't really trust uh mm-hmm. my perspective or what i was sharing on it and mm-hmm. uh and so i think that that you can identify any of those things in your own life where you probably have shared with someone who kind of poo-pooed or minimized what you were, your hurt or whatever you were feeling. And it wasn't a good feeling. And so if you can extrapolate that to a macro scale, a mass scale, um, like how much more frustrating would that be? Yeah. Um, and I've experienced that frustration. Actually, that happened to me not long ago. And I, uh, expressed uh you know uh we may have talked about it in season one you know when i experienced you know this white lady talking about um a black cashier in a grocery store in dc and and she um had a problem with one of the self-checkout registers and um he misunderstood her and gave her the wrong you know change or whatever it was and she said to me well you know you know they can't count anyway you know and I was like, but I'm, who is they? Who is, who is they again? Am I they too? You know? And then I made a very discreet post on Facebook talking about behavior that was 
appearing to be racist, you know, and I had a few people comment and say, oh, I don't know if she's racist, you know, I don't know. I don't know, like, maybe you misunderstood what was going on, Brandon, and maybe you just didn't think that. And I was like, you weren't there. And if the situation had been reversed, would you have even questioned someone else of, you know, who was white about their experience? You wouldn't even question it. But because I'm talking about an experience that involves someone that looked like you, now all of a sudden, you know, where I have credibility with all, with, with I mean, people I have a deep amount of credibility with, you know, all of a sudden questioned me and questioned mm-hmm. my authority, questioned my ability to intuit what was happening in the situation because it actually reflected poorly, maybe, upon them, mm-hmm. right, or upon their race and felt the need to defend or, 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 or minimize my, you know, or just put me in a category, you know, as another black man who was angry, you mm-hmm. know, looking for a reason, you know, mm-hmm. to create an example. I said, here again, is it a conspiracy? Did I have a conversation with anybody about this beforehand where I needed to like come against all the white people? If you actually know me, you know, I never do that. Mm-hmm. If you knew me, you would know yeah. that I never do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I, I do remember that. And I, I remember that post and I, I do remember you bringing it up. And I think... I was even, I think I was convicted a little bit in that, in that, because I could definitely see where in the past I've, I have done that, uh, you know, doubted or second guessed someone and, uh, and express that. And if we're, we talk a lot about Jesus, we talk about the big man here, uh, on this He's podcast. He's a big man. We can talk man. about the big man. Big man. Uh, you know, and if we use his, him as an example, and I'm always, I am over the last couple of years, especially referring back more and more to red text in the Bible where Jesus is talking and speaking and what is his posture and treatment of people. And this is uh, a guy who's like the three-eyed raven in Game of Thrones, like who knows everything. <laughs> He's divine. <laughs> he is the son of God. And But you have these ignorant uh, disciples, friends of his who are saying these things and he just, you know, he doesn't correct or he corrects where necessary or gently. Um, but you often see his response to often the, the the hypocrites of the day are the ones who are coming down and saying, Jesus, what is your problem? These people are operating wrong and you do need to correct them more. And he's saying like, step off, like give, give them some space. Um, Cause that's if, when you come around someone and you can, and be in community with them, don't address what you think is a misperception, maybe address the hurts in the society that are causing what you perceive. If you really think it is a mis- misperception, talk about why that might be going on in the first place um, and and mm-hmm. look to see where you can affect change in that area. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and we talk about it. Be curious. You know, believe the best about people. You know, like, you know, most of us are not walking around, you know, creating stories like this thing in, Charleston, you know, is this a conspiracy theory? Did this thing not happen? You know, are people going to tell me that the Emanuel Nine didn't give their lives, you know, um, didn't die, weren't martyred, you know? Um, are we now all of a sudden going to create these conspiracy theories, you know, in the next, you know, 50 years like we do around the Holocaust, you know? Do we do that around situations that are Im- impacting, you know, black people today? Do we do it around slavery? You know, and so, no, slavery wasn't and it really happened. Or it wasn't that bad. Or it wasn't that bad, right? That is the thing that, that is something people say, right? It wasn't that bad. Oh, dang, that's true. Yeah, we're already doing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, gone conspiracy theory. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It wasn't that bad. You were indentured. You know, you got out in seven years or eight years, you know. That's what it is. Or or whatever it is, you know. Or your masters treated you well, Mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. All of that stuff, right? And we don't have to deal with things like we talked about in 
episode four about colorism. We don't have to deal with, you know, you know, um, all of the fallout, you know, culturally and systemically today. Um, we don't have to deal with things like black on black crime. We don't have to deal, you know, with the, dis- the disproportionate numbers of black men that are in jail today. You know, all of it is not real, right? Mm-hmm. And the shooting, and the shootings that happen, and and the animus that people feel, the bias that people feel, would never lead to violence. And mm-hmm. I would never be a person that would, mm-hmm. you know, that would be violent, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. My bias and, 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 and my anger or things I disagree with are not actually racist and I would never be violent. Right? Really? Right? What are the lies we tell ourselves? Better take inventory. Yeah. Um, Sorry, y'all. We're way off script today. We are off script, man. And still melancholy. Mm-hmm. I feel like I just need to shake it off. I just I got hot. I also feel like my <laughs> neck is stiff. Like My neck is my stiff. Neck has been stiff. Y'all gonna be mad at me on this one though. They were like, I was like, yeah, yeah. you would, you know, I mean, don't, don't think under any, any given circumstances, Mm. you might not be the one, you know, and we might, and and I'm talking across the board, black, white, green, or yellow, you know, like, don't think that you won't be the one depending on what's going on psychologically or emotionally in you to actually be one to compel violence in these situations. You might Mm. actually be the one. Oh yeah. You know, like none of us is above it. Yeah. I mean, we're capable of a lot of things as humans. Game of Thrones reference again. Look at Daenerys. <laughs> I haven't. Targaryen. I haven't. I oh, haven't you haven't seen it. You haven't seen them. You haven't Stop seen it. Game of Thrones. Period. I ha- no, or I've seen. Just... I'm, I haven't seen the last season. Don't. T- I'm oh, waiting to binge them all. Okay, my at bad. once. Spoiler don't tell alert. me anything. Uh, I'm not telling you. You haven't. Anything. Told, don't tell me anything. No, I will literally. You want to see? You want to see a crime? Mm. <laughs> you want to see a crime take you might place. hear one <laughs> if you if you if you spoil game of thrones for me on this podcast you might you might you may not hear mark next time Sorry, <laughs> yeah if you don't hear me next time and it's just brandon then you know being angry you know what happened <laughs> so uh real quick i want to talk about some of the things that came out some people brandon asked a really interesting crazy ass question at the end uh, of it was the crazy was it crazy? It was crazy did it seem crazy did it feel crazy uh, i mean it, you With, did it i think so. only in a way that you could ask it well praise god like right like nobody else could ask this question then you'll understand <laughs> it, right? no one but else he he sat up there in front of like 70 people mixed group mixed diverse audience and he said here's what i want to know he said uh three he wanted three black people to stand up and say name a, something that they wish white people would know or understand about the black experience uh but that's not even the crazy part like that's that's pretty normal (laughs) and then he asked he wanted three white people to stand up and say what they wanted black people to know uh about the whole race racial justice conversation racial um tensions and so we got some interesting things i'm going to just say real quick uh summarize some of the things that some of our black attendees said uh, which I thought were really compelling and true. Actually, I can only remember two of them. Uh, but what they want is they want people to call out and say what is what. So if it's if something is racist, they they want us to to call it what it is and don't sugarcoat it, don't dance around it. And I think that that's the biggest thing I've learned over the last year is that like I I still believe that there's a lot of ignorance, more ignorance than animus. But if you're participating in a society that is still operating in in whiteness, a social construct that benefits white people then there's still a lot of white supremacy that was just occurring and racism that is still occurring. And we, we need to be able to call it out and say what it is. Uh, second, they want allies. And, and so black, black people are tired. That's what uh, someone stood up and said. She just she said, I'm tired. I'm tired of trying to educate white people. I'm tired of that being my responsibility. And, uh, and so that is, those are two things specifically 
that I've experienced was one, a white man standing up and using his pulpit, uh, Matt Chandler, the village pastor of the village church in Dallas, Texas, uh, back around Ferguson. I want to say that was 2015, right? He, he stood up and said, you know, white people, you need to listen. And, uh, and I, I thought that was interesting. This is a man that I respected standing up and saying that. And so that's what you have here is he's saying, listen, the racism is occurring. It's evil. White supremacy is, occur- is happening. It's evil. Uh, and so he was both those things. He was both an ally in that situation and um, in calling things out for what they were. And so that really was one thing that a defining moment in my life over the last few years where I really started to understand a little bit more. I'd already been kind of doing some work based on a relationship with a, a woman who was a, an immigrant from a Latin American country. But that was really what stood out to me. And so now, white people, like, what can you do uh, where you are? How can you be an ally? And, um, and where can you call out racism where you see it occur? And then some of the things the white folks said, uh, I thought was also really interesting. Did you want to? Oh, no, please. No, no. Oh, okay. no, please. Please say I'm going. <laughs> All right. So I'm continuing. One woman uh, was really sweet. She said that uh, I just want to talk, talk to other white people and say, you know, we've said we white people have said plenty. Uh, it's time to listen more. And so I thought that was really interesting. She kind of turned the question back around and was, and was really challenging uh, white people to listen more. Um, and another woman stood up and said that um, actually, I don't know if this was in response to your question or something else, but she talked about uh, the, the churches. at slavery and the church's role and and all that um yeah actually i only remember two of these things now but there's this one woman who at the very end Mm. uh this is what triggered a lot of people and i thought the way we handled it was right i thought the way you handled it brandon was correct i've been wrestling with whether it was the right thing to do and even as the woman was answering and saying this uh, I was wondering how to respond to her, but she basically outlined a couple, a handful of scenarios in which she felt she had been slighted by black people and accused of racism or was the object of some ridicule based on what she perceived to be all about her being white. And, and uh, so she, her, her, the thrust of it was, and she even said, she's like, I don't care who I offend here. Uh, but she's like, I don't want black people to assume that everything a white person does is racist. I, I don't want to be boxed in to, to just being a racist because I'm white. And, um, and so a couple of interesting responses that we could have had to that, but we kind of just left it hanging in the air for, <laughs> for some people to, yeah. to digest themselves and process. Yeah, we did. We left it hanging. I mean, you know, the, the like philosophy there, you know, is that, you know, you let people be what they are so that they can, so, so that the issue can show up as it is, you know, as it really is. And, you know, my instinct there, you know, was just to say, let everybody see it, but also let everyone deal with it. You know, we have to model, I mean, Mark, you know, you and I do this, you know, every time we get on this microphone, you know, we're talking in a way that is modeling peaceful engagement, you know, for others, you know, and taking the opportunity away from people to show dignity to someone who is not connected with your experience at all. And in fact, her, her own, like, I mean, I, 
you know, God love her, you know, for being courageous enough to speak out about that. You know, this, this poor white woman, I just felt, and she's not, she's actually, she was, she's not, I don't mean that in a, in a derogatory sense. I mean, she was just like, she too needed to share something, even though it didn't align with some of the experiences in the room. And it's ironic in a sense that in a, in an attempt to prove that she wasn't or isn't racist, called on two examples of where black people had called her a name, called her white, made fun of her, whatever it was, and used that as evidence that she's not racist by basically trying to say, well, obviously these people are racist, right? So the psychology of that's really like twisted in a sense. You think about it, it's a little twisted because she was basically saying, I'm not racist because you're racist, right? Now, if call... Call me crazy, right? If I went up to anybody and said, I'm not racist, right? Because you are, right? Does that make any sense to anybody on any level, right? It doesn't make any sense, but that's fundamentally what she was doing is she was using an example with black people in it, which is, might be racist in and of itself to do that, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting, right? It might be, a, not, not that, and I, I hate to label people as a racist. I say that there's racist behavior. Mm -hmm. You know, I never, I hardly, I, I really, I have a hard time labeling people, yeah. you know, in their value and their character, or whatever it is, like, like you were racist, but that may not be your intention, but you may have some racist things going on in your mm -hmm. life, honey, you yeah. know, some ways in, in which you're behaving that we can, you know, that we can approach and call out. But anyway, but that was our whole experience with the manual nine and super grateful, you know, for the documentary manual and people should go out and see it. And one of the things I said is that I'm really concerned that people actually won't go see it because mm -hmm. we're just running away from this topic. You know, yeah. we're, we're running away from the things that make us feel uncomfortable anyway. We're running away from pain or running away from anything that causes us discomfort in our lives, period, much less something that has to do with the macro kind of, um, uh, the, the kind of impact and where we might be complicit, you know, in, in what's happening in the world today. So anyway, I, I, I think we're, I think we're at the end, and, and yeah, we're, and we're tired of being melancholy. We are at the end, and we're tired of being melancholy. <laughs> but no, I agree. I think my my fear too is one: if people are going to go out and see the movie, just in general, but then are the the people who really need to see the movie are they the ones who are going to go right. see it? And right. I think maybe. I mean, I think that it's an interesting film about a mass shooting that occurred, and I think if you just you know leave that hanging out there then maybe that could compel some people to go see it but uh but it is so heavy i just wish there could be a panel discussion every screening because huh. people are going to walk out of that theater and you know maybe uh with god's providence yes. people go in and they type some things in and they want to learn more uh, about you know processing the film maybe they'll stumble on the podcast and and this one and, and really this will help kind of talk through some of the things that they might be experiencing themselves going to see the movie uh, and so, uh, just one last plug, as we said, it's going to be a limited screening, limited dates in, uh, June 17th and 19th. Uh, so go ahead and look up that movie, uh, and see if it's going to be shown in your area, grab some tickets, go see it, bring some friends, bring some family. Um, and then, yeah, and, and support that film. All the proceeds from that film are not going to the filmmakers. They're going to the families of the victims. Um, and so lots of good that can come out of that movie. So, uh, yeah, 
Yeah. And that's all we got. That's great. That's our call to action. Go that's look up call. the movie. Man, that's, yeah, look it up. And then hopefully it has a second life on some other streaming yeah. services yeah. afterwards. So. And try not to be so melancholy. And Yeah. You know, try to be a little more. And try to love people better. Don't oh, be a God. racist. Don't be racist. Don't be melancholy. <laughs> Hashtag don't be a racist. Yeah. This, all is right. the time. <laughs> this is the time. <laughs> this is the time. All right, y'all. Thanks for listening. And we'll check you out next time. Peace. Thanks for tuning in to Behind the Scene. Just a quick reminder that the views expressed in this podcast are strictly that of Brandon's and mine and do not reflect that of our employer. Uh, And then second, if you enjoyed this content at all, we'd love it if you could like it and subscribe. And then, of course, if you think you know anyone who would benefit from this content or would like to engage with it, please share it with them as well. And we will see you next time.